Testament. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. We've been going through uh, these principles about what it means to be a people who walk by faith, who live by faith. And we see that in in a number of people outlined here. Um, Today, we're going to grapple a bit with this concept of what does it even mean by faith? I can remember some years ago, and since I've shared the story before, I'm going to be brief, but I, I want us to grapple with this truth that we're going to be looking at today from the beginning. And I can remember years ago, uh, probably 11, 12 years ago, as my business was tanking, it was very difficult. Uh, the finances were not there. Um, Mike uh, Jeffords worked for me, and uh it just came to a time where I had to release him, and he said, Mike, you can try and release me, but I'm still going to work for you on Thursdays for free. And Mike worked for me for a couple of years, one day of work at no charge, and he served in this way to be able to be a blessing to me, and that, that's just Mike's nature. You know, he's, he's a servant from, from the get-go. And I can remember coming to this place because it was at that time that the housing market tanked, that the, it impacted the dealerships. You remember when um, GM and Chrysler were asking for government bailouts, and it really impacted the work that I did because I, I service dealerships. And I can remember just gathering the family together and said, guys, you know what? We need to pray because here's the reality of our financial situation. And I had come up against this type of difficulty a number of times in my life, and maybe you have as well, in which there was nothing that I could do. I had tried to get into more accounts. Every door wasn't just closed. It was as if it was locked. And I can remember getting into my van, going to the next dealership, saying, God, come on, I'm doing everything that I can, and I need you to do something right now, and I need you to provide. Open a door, Lord. And every door was seriously locked. And I just gathered my family. I said, okay, gang, we need to pray because I'm doing what I know how to do. I am not the best salesman. I am doing everything I can because there was a call, is a call on my life as a dad and husband to provide for my family. If you are a head of your home, God has called you to be a provider of your family. That's your calling. Now, I believe God gives us many callings. Moses, as we look at him, there was a calling on his life, and there was a call on my life, not just as a pastor or someone, but there was a call on my life to provide. And at that moment, I just came to the conclusion, God, I can't do this. And we were hundreds of dollars short every month, and I just said, Lord, what's going on here? You know, as the typical person, I'm, you know, is there sin in my life? Do I need to do or need to repent? God, you know, is the next shoe going to drop? And, and this type of mentality, I just humbled myself before my family. And I got down on my face, on my hands and knees in the middle of our family room. And I just said, guys, just gather around your dad and husband, since my mom, my wife was there, and just pray over me right now. My kids gathered around me. And as they prayed, I can just remember the spirit of God falling. And I just began to weep before the Lord. And God needed to humble me to this point where I just, I just confessed, God, I can't, but I know that you can. And as my children prayed, uh, miracles began to happen. But as I said, this, is, this wasn't the first time that something like this had happened. I remember when I was going through seminary, 
and it, I had s- stepped out of UPS. Uh, they were requiring 45 hours a week and going to school full time. I couldn't do this, and so I had to cut back and eventually step out of it, started a lawn business, and within eight months, I was on my knees. Well, actually, at the, literally, I was walking around in a, a large community room uh, at six o'clock in the morning just saying, God, I don't know what you're doing. But this is not enough money for me to support my family. And what are you going to do right now? And I really pressed God. And I want you to know, if, if you're in this a situation in your life today in which your back is up against the wall, God does not mind you pressing him with questions. And so I pressed him with these questions. I wasn't impudent. I wasn't disrespectful. I was desperate. And so I remember just walking around with a cup of coffee, because that's the only way I can pray at six in the morning. And I am praying, and God stopped me. He said, Mike, give me two weeks. And you've heard this story. Within two weeks, God provided the biggest account. Actually, it took 13 days for God to provide this. On a Saturday, God opened the door for an account that, that tripled what I was bringing in. And God met that need, because if he did not, I would have to stop going to school, and I felt that this, I was in the center of God's will. And today, you may feel as if you're in the very center of God's will, and everything around you is tumbling down, and you're just throwing your hands up in the air. God, what is up with this? What is going on in my life? Did I veer off course or something? Because Moses finds himself in this very same situation and you, that you may find yourself in today. Because I found myself in it at that time when I was starting the paint touch-up business that I do today, when I was starting the church, God delights in bringing you to this point in which you confess, God, I can't do this. And God smiles and said, yes, you are right where I want you. Because this is what he did with Moses. Now, I want to ask you what place of weakness you are in in your life today. I want, to, I, I, I want you to think about that question very seriously. What place of weakness are you at, and I'm wording this purposely, weakness, are you at right now in your life? Because I'm going to venture to say that God led you there. Yes, God led you there. As a matter of fact, if you don't mind, on the back of your bulletins, it says sermon notes. I want you to just jot down in the upper left-hand corner what that place of weakness is. Because I want, I, I want you to start thinking about what God wants to apply in your life through this message today in the life of Moses. Now, you, remem- you may remember that in Hebrews 11, we read that by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. In verse 26, chapter 11, it says he regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. And we discovered that the author of Hebrews has such keen insight into Exodus chapter 2 because this is where he lifts it out. And we discovered two things that led him to believe that he had actually separated himself from his Egyptian heritage and identified with his Hebrew heritage because there's no way in which he would approach an Egyptian and feel that the only way, as a prince in Egypt, the only way to keep this Egyptian from beating the Hebrew would be to kill the Egyptian. No way. He would just simply have to say the word and the Egyptian would stop. So why didn't he? 
because he was no longer a prince in Egypt. And when he stepped in the very next day to break up a fight between two Hebrews, the one mistreating the other, he spoke to him, and he said, what are you doing this for? He's a fellow Hebrew. And the man looked at him and said, who made you ruler and judge of my life, of, of this situation? And the answer should have been, well, hello, the Pharaoh, because I'm like prince of Egypt, or at least one of the princes, perhaps not the crown prince, but a prince, but he didn't. There was, no, there was nothing he could say because he was not a ruler and he was not a judge. And so we realized that Moses at this point had already stepped back from his Egyptian heritage, identified with the Jews. And as we looked in Genesis 15, we discovered something. You may remember from last week that the book of Genesis is divided up into 10 Toledos. A Toledoth is generally translated in the King James genealogy, the genealogy of, or in the NIV, the account of, the story of, if you will. But these were written down. We know in Genesis 5.1, it says, it says, it introduces the Toledoth with this. It says, the book of the Toledoth of Adam. That means it was written down. Moses was not the author of, of Genesis. He was the compiler of Genesis. We know this in, in the New Testament. He's never, when Genesis is quoted, it's never attributed to Moses. So he was the compiler, inspired of God, wrote infallibly, inerrantly, the book of Genesis. But he had these ten Toledos that he now edited and inspired of the Holy Spirit wrote down. Now, I'm going to encourage you, when what would cause a prince in Egypt to do what Moses did? Unless, as somehow he was identifying with his Jewish, his Hebrew heritage, they said, Moses, have you ever read this passage? Because in Genesis 15, it says that what we're experiencing today is predicted. It was predicted hundreds of years ago. Actually, Moses, it was predicted 400 years ago by God to Abraham that we would be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. And then God would come to the, 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 the descendants of Abraham and rescue them and deliver them out of that hand and actually punish the nation that had enslaved them. Moses was an Egyptian. He was well-schooled in mathematics. He could add it up 400 years. Well, hello, that's like right now. God is going to do this in, in my day. And I can, I, you, you get this sense that Moses knew that God had called him to be the fulfiller of Genesis 15. He, Moses, was going to be the one to deliver the people of Israel. Stephen puts it this way in Acts 7.25, Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. Referring to this time in which he had killed the Egyptian, and now the next day the Hebrews said, hey, who made you ruler and judge over me? He truly believed that he was going to be the deliverer. Now I want to ask you a question. What do you think was going through Moses' mind? As he was planning, if he was the deliverer, how is he going to do this? How is he going to do it? Now, we know the story. We know how he did it with the Exodus and all, but Moses didn't. He, in fact, he didn't even have an inkling of that until 40 years later. At 40 years of age, 
which of course would be when he was 80, at 40 years of age, stepping back from the throne of Egypt, how was he going to deliver Israel? He was no longer an Egyptian. He had no longer, he had no clout in Egypt at all. He was probably a cuss word to them. He identified with the Jews for what reason? The only thing I can come up with, and I might be wrong, and this is a speculation, but the only thing I can come up with is he was going to lead a coup. By the arm of the flesh, he was going to go into the Hebrews where they're living in Goshen, stir up the people, and, and after all, I mean, he had killed an Egyptian, so that clearly identified him with the Hebrews and no longer with the Egyptians. But he, he, The only thing I can figure is he was going to rally the two million plus Hebrews that were in the land of Goshen and, and fight against the Egyptians and free them. It was going to be a military coup. I mean, if you can think of something else, by all means, let me know. But that's the only thing I can figure. But that was not God's plan. Not only was it not God's plan, it was not God's timing. And now we come then, as he is fleeing, we touched on this last week, but because I had to go through so much information, I, I went through this faster than I intended, and I want to look at it, again, starting with verse 27, including verse 28, and I, wanna, I want us to see how it segues into the rest of the sermon as we go through. Uh, we're we're going to skip quite a bit, and I'm just going to focus really on one verse, but I want us to see how this pulls together. Tw verse 27, by faith, he left Egypt not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who was invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. And in actuality, the reason why God did this, which was the 10th plague, the reason why God did this was because Israel was God's firstborn. Because you were mistreating him, my firstborn, Egypt, I will take your firstborn. And that was the judgment of God upon Egypt. Genesis 15, so well, so completely fulfilled. Here's my question. Why does it say by faith he left Egypt? Because as we were, if we were to go back, we did this last week, and look at the text in Exodus 2, it says that he realized that the word of him killing the Egyptian had gotten out. And that the, the Pharaoh was furious, and Moses fled. The, Hebrew of author, the, the author of Hebrews is saying, though he didn't flee because of fear. As a matter of fact, it says he didn't fear the king's anger. Now, it's possible that he truly believed he was the deliverer. He knew for certain that God, very soon, whenever the exact year, day would be, but God would very soon be setting and, and delivering the people of, uh, people of Israel from the hand of the Egyptians. He knew that he was going to be bringing them back to Canaan because that's what God promised in Genesis 15. He knew this. But it, if he knew this, then why did he still leave Egypt by faith? Now, it's, it's possible that he was very disillusioned, very disappointed. I thought I was going to be the deliverer. I guess I'm not. And so he leaves. He still has faith that God is going to set Israel free. He just doesn't know the time. But the question then comes back. It, 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 the text doesn't say he left with faith, but that the reason for him leaving was faith. 
His leaving Egypt was actually a demonstration of faith. Do you understand this question then? So here's what I'm going to suggest to you. I think the author of Hebrews is getting at this, that he did not die to that heartbeat that said, God has called me to be the deliverer. And so he left Egypt knowing that this is not the time, but the time will come. And so his leaving was a demonstration of faith. You know what? I'm leaving right now because I need to, but as MacArthur said, I'll be back. I'll be back. God is going to do this. But now we encounter a problem that the author of Hebrews doesn't get into, but we encounter in Exodus 3. Because Moses, though he left in faith, 40 years later, when he is actually called by God to deliver the people of Israel, where's he at? Do you remember the story? Do you, have you seen the movie, Ten Commandments? You know where he's at? He's like, I'm completely disqualified. I can't. I am weak. I can't speak well. Let me just tell you, God, the very reasons why I think you're wrong. So here's my question. What happened to Moses over those 40 years. Because I'm going to tell you this, what happened to Moses in those 40 years in the Midianite desert is what happens to many of us. I want you to imagine this, that God speaks a promise into your heart. And you are convinced, yes, God is going to do this. You run up against some impossibilities and, and God, you, you continue to believe. But then 40 years pass. And I want you to seriously consider that. 40 years pass. To give you perspective, I married my wife about 35 years ago. 40 years. It was about 45 years ago that I even became a Christian. It was in the neighborhood of 40 years ago that I began to feel, a, actually a little bit more, that I began to feel stir to full-time ministry, whatever that would look like. But 40, that's a long time. How many of you are not even 40 years old yet? Yeah, there's a lot of it. Like half of the people, more than half of the people because you're not admitting it. There's more than half of us who are not even 40 years of age. And so this is like more than you've ever experienced in your life. And you were to wait that long. That's where Moses was at. Moses, I, I can only imagine the thought going through his mind, God, did you bring me into this desert to just leave me here? To abandon me here? Because that is what tested faith that fails begins to ask. When it's failing, it begins to ask. It's the very question that the Jews, the Israelites, asked when they were in that very same desert, wandering for 40 years. M Moses, did you bring us out here to die? Has God left us? Has he abandoned us? They, they weren't there for 40 years yet. They were there for just one year, and they were always, already wondering, God, where are you? Yeah, they didn't even have to, they didn't go for 40 years like Moses did. But here's the beauty of this. God allowed Moses to be brought to that place of complete weakness, brokenness, Abandoned, feeling of abandonment for God to be able to get his heart right. For God to be able to say, okay, are, are, you, are you done right now with all of your personal dreams? Are you ready for mine? 
Because the way I want to do this is so totally different than the way you want to do it. And we know at the burning bush, Exodus chapter 3, God spoke to him. Moses still couldn't handle this call. Oh, man. Are we doing this again, Lord? You're going to call me back to Egypt, really? And you're going to have me do what now? I'm just supposed to go up to Pharaoh. I know this guy. I grew up with this guy. And you want me to ask him to let my people get? You're right. I can't do that. What clout do I have? He'll spit upon me. What abilities do I My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. And it's not because he had eaten a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Got it? He, 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 could, he, 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 he played all of his cards as far as why he could not. And God so patiently listened to him. And in essence, he said, I'm sorry, Moses, are you done now? Because I'll just have Aaron speak for you if that's what you need. But you're going. Can you do this? Can you obey me? And Moses finally yields, kicking and screaming, yes, okay. And you find out, as you read through Exodus, that Moses indeed does speak for him, at least in the beginning. But at some point, Aaron stops doing the speaking, and Moses does. At some point, Moses realized, wow, God is really in this. Because it says here, look at the text now, it says here in excuse me, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 26, by faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood. Do you remember what plague that was? That, ha- that was the 10th plague. Just before that, though, it says he, he, he persevered because he saw him who is invisible. That was his experience at the burning bush. You remember last week I said to you, Whatever call God has on your life, he will allow you to experience enough of him and enough of his glory and his grace so you can persevere. Can you imagine God saying, you know what, Moses, this military coup idea you had in your mind? No, out the window. Nope, I have a totally different way to do it. I want you to go in there and I want you to tell Pharaoh that, God is going to turn the Nile to blood. Moses, did I hear you right? As a matter of fact, there's going to be frogs coming out of this Nile. There's going to be biting flies. There's going to be locusts. There's going to be diseases. There's going to be hail, on and on. And and I'm going to do all of these things and I'm going to judge their gods and show how puny and weak they are and that I and I only as Yahweh creator God am the only God and I'm going to show them this, but I'm going to do it through your hand. Oh, whoa, seriously? And and you want me to do this? For nine plagues and every single one, even after the ninth plague, the darkness, Pharaoh said, I will not let your people go. I just want to ask you, how would you feel at that point? We don't know that God had said it's going to take 10. We don't even know that God had said, okay, when I finally do this plague, judging the firstborn, that's when he's finally, we don't know this, not until the ninth plague. That's why it says his experience at the burning bush allowed him to persevere. Nine times hearing Pharaoh say, absolutely not. I want to ask you, (laughs) 
Have you ever had nine doors close in your face and still believe? And still think that this call of God on your life, whatever he's wanting you to do, whatever he's, he's leading you to, that God closes nine doors in your face? Are you still believing? Or are you like, like, like Moses and, and definitely like the Israelites saying, okay, God, you brought me out here for what end? Hello, are you even still there? Because I feel, I'm feeling a little alone here right now, a little abandoned. Did, did you have anything to say? And the sky was brazen for 40 years for, for Moses. And now nine plagues. But even after the ninth plague, he had just come to that point in his life where he just said, you know what, God? I am, I am totally sold out for you. I know that you are real. I know that you are true to your word. I know that you are faithful in keeping your promises that you spoke 400 years ago to Abraham. You're doing it to, you're going to do it today in my day. And you've actually smiled upon me and said, you know what, Moses, I'm going to use you. Now, there are times in the wilderness, I'm sure Moses did not think that God was smiling upon him. Maybe in a joking way, <laughs> I've called you to lead this bunch. And he was like, really, God? But tr truly, at this point of testing after the ninth plague, he persevered. God is going to do this. I don't know if it's going to take 15 plagues. I don't know if it's going to take 20 or 30, but God is going to do this. And then finally, God broke the back of Egypt. And, Mo and er the, the, the Pharaoh said, go. He didn't just ask them politely. He commanded them, go, go, get away from me. Go out, do whatever you want. We read in the next verse that he changed his mind and came after them. And, and we know what happened there. God parted the sea and they walked through on dry ground, but the Egyptians could not. They had to take some instant swimming lessons. They didn't make it. They drowned in the depths of the sea. And no matter what modern theologians will tell us today, it wasn't because some wind blew ankle-deep water off to the side because good luck trying to drown in ankle-deep water. No, there was a wall of water to the right and a wall of water to the left. This was indeed an absolutely astonishing miracle. With this in mind, Moses persevered At that, just before the 10th plague hit, he was told to do one more thing. Just take blood, put it over the threshold of all of those who live in Goshen, all the Hebrews. And Moses did this. He didn't say, wow, God, really? How am I going to get 2 million people to know this? And if we do it, what if? And he, no. Okay, God, I'm going to keep obeying you. By faith, he kept the Passover. God is going to show up. And I just want you to know, church, in your situation where you're at, down on your face, me in the middle of my family room, with my face in the ground, by faith, God will do this. Can you, by faith, say, yes, God? I, I'm not going to listen to my feelings right now because I'm, I'm feeling abandoned. I'm feeling alone. I'm feeling, God, where are you? But by faith, I am saying, I still believe.
God is going to do this. God is going to show up in your situation. He is going to be the deliverer that you need. He is going to be the freer that you are needing, the healing that you are needing, the God that keeps his promises, that faithful God, that's who he will be to you. Now, as we move on, I'm gonna, I want us to see a principle here and how it plays out in the Old Testament because everything to do with what we're talking about this morning. But bear with me. I'm going to read several verses, starting with verse 32 through verse 38, as we are beginning to wrap up this chapter. It says, and what more shall I say? I mean, he's just listed incident example after example of by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, like a chant, by faith, by faith. What more shall I say? Do I have to take time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned into strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogged, which means they did not renounce their faith. In that way, they refused to be released. They did not renounce their faith, but because of that, they died. Some faced jeers and flogging, while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. Tradition says this is what happened to Isaiah sawed in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. And that's where some of us feel we're at today. Some of us, we're in a hole in the ground. Is God even listening? Can I bring your attention back to verse 34? Halfway down, it says, whose weakness was turned into strength and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Can you just underline that or highlight that in your Bible? Whose weakness was turned into strength. Moses, when he assessed himself, as he stood before God, yeah, I'm sorry, God, I hear what you're saying, but all I can see is my weaknesses. All I can see is my failures. All I can see is, you know, the stupid idea that I had in my mind 40 years ago that totally failed. And it, yeah, I think you got the wrong guy. I think you got the wrong guy, God. And God took his weakness and he turned it into strength. Here's the question I want to ask you. As we read that next phrase, my question is, when did these people become strong? When did they become strong? There's only one answer. They became, listen to this, they became strong in battle. What that tells me is before the battle, they were weak. Before the battle, they were strategizing and saying, we're kind of lost here, God. We're, 
Our back is up against the wall. We can't do this. Jesus said, does a king with 10,000 troops go against a king with 20,000 troops, twice the number, and not sit down and count the cost? Now, he leads into counting the cost to follow him. Because to follow him means we give up everything. Everything. We don't think about giving up everything. We give it up. God, it's yours. I own nothing. All of my dreams, all of these thoughts, they're all yours. They're all yours. It's like Abraham, and we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. It's like Abraham reaching for that knife. Everything I've got, I'm putting it to death. It's yours. It's on the altar. As that king weighs the cost, he might go into battle with only 10,000 against 20. But I tell you what, he's going to want a word from God. Right? I want you to go with me. I want us to talk about King Asaph. One incident in his life that we find in 2 Chronicles. He faced this similar situation, 2 Chronicles chapter 14. About 15 years or more prior to this, Shishak, the pharaoh of Egypt, had plundered Rehoboam. So he knows what it's like. He'd heard about stories, and he was alive. He had heard about how Shishak, the mighty king of Egypt, had destroyed the armies of, of Judah very shortly after the division from the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Something like this is happening again. And we read in chapter 14, verse 8, Asa had an army of 300,000 men from Judah, equipped with large shields and with, and with spears, and with 280,000 from Benjamin, armed with small shields and with bows. All of these were brave fighting men. Do your math. That is how many? 580,000. That sounds like a pretty decent army. Well, let's go on to the next verse. Zerah, the Cushite, maybe in your version it's, it says uh, Ethiopian. Uh, that would be as Egypt would have a northern and southern kingdom. The southern kingdom was Ethiopia or Cush. And Zerah, the Cushite, marched out against them with a vast army. And I'm going to pause there for a moment. The NIV says a vast army. In the Hebrew, it says a thousand thousands. A thousand thousands. You do the math. You know how much that is? That's one million. Now, some would suggest, well, he's just being using figurative speech here. He means thousands upon thousands. Then, it, then I would venture to say, then that means if we're going to translate it figuratively, he has more than a million. Because minimally, they're outnumbered just about two to one. Just like Jesus, does a king with 10,000 go against 20,000 and not sit down and count the cost? So he is now... The, the army is encroaching on his land. The army of Cush, now perhaps it was Egypt under the Egyptian and Zira is the general. However we read this, this million-man army is sitting on Israelite territory. It is their land, and they're sitting. It's, it's east of, it, of Jerusalem, excuse me, west of Jerusalem, 
towards the coast, but they're sitting down on their land, and they are about to destroy a fortress. Now, Asa had just fortified certain fortresses at the head of each road that led to Jerusalem, such as Lachish. Lachish is probably the most well-known one. If an army got through Lachish, they could get to Jerusalem. Every road that led to Jerusalem had a fortress, a fortified city, walled city, with many troops to be able to defend them so that the army would not be able to get to Jerusalem. And so Asa marches out to defend the people of Judah. And it goes on, and it says that they came, Zerah came against them with a vast army, a million, and 300 chariots, and came as far as Marisha. Asa went out to meet him and took up battle positions in the valley of Zephathah near Marisha. Then Asa called to the Lord his God and said, now listen to this. He doesn't say, God, where are you? I, I'm sitting on David's throne and you promised David that if that king would honor you, that you would bless him. Where is the blessing now? I have sought to honor you. And he was a good king. I have sought to honor you, God, and I've got a million troops outside the, my, at the border of my land, and they're about to take that fortress, and they will march on Jerusalem, and we will all perish. What do we do, God? They outman us two to one. This is what he says. He says, Lord, there is no one like you to help the powerless, the weak that we read in Hebrews 11. To help the powerless against the mighty. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rely on you. And in your name, we have come against this vast army. O Lord, our, you are our God. Do not let man prevail against you. That is how Asa viewed his position. Outmanned, this army was not just coming against the people of God. They were coming against Yahweh. He's not just our God, like there are many gods. No, the one true God. And we come out to him, not in our own strength. We come out to him in your name. But we are powerless, and they are mighty. God, don't let man prevail against you. He doesn't say against us, but against you, God. And here's what I want to ask right now where you're at. Is that how you are thinking? Down on your knees, maybe you're taking this 40-day time of prayer and fasting very seriously, and maybe you're fasting for your job. Maybe you're fasting for your ministry or your witness. Maybe you're fasting for members in your family. Maybe you're fasting for your boss who's been making it so hard, not just on you, but everybody. Maybe you're fasting and praying for some breakthrough of a stronghold in your life. And you just feel as if the enemy is about to take one more step and it's done. And you are at that point, you're saying, God, if he takes a step, he wins. L God, listen. 
Satan will win? Is this really what you desire, God? Because I can't do any more. You see, it was at that point when I got down on my knees that I realized, God, I can't do any more. Are you really going to allow the devil to gain victory here? Because I'll have to find another full-time job. I will have zero time to pastor. And if this is what you want, then God, I'm willing to do this, but I do not believe it. God, I need you to step in right now. Do you know what God did? That happened, I I guess it was on a a Sunday night. That's when we had family night. Maybe it was on a Monday. I just can't remember. It was a long time ago. But that following Thursday, the business just exploded. Within days, God acted. And he just wanted to flex his muscles to be able to say to my family, this is how mighty I am. This is how I respond to the pleas and the requests of my people. These were my children. Kate, the oldest was you probably, what, 20, 19, somewhere around in there. My youngest, Jim, was nine years old. Am I doing the math right? Maybe he's a little bit older. These are kids. Lord, they, they are just beginning to understand what following God means And God, I need you to show up here. Please don't disappoint my family. And God said, Mike, you're broken, you're weak, and that's exactly where I need you to be. Because in my weakness, his strength is made perfect. When I am weak, That's when his grace shows up. And all I can do is say, God, I can't do any more. I can only receive from you right now. And God, over the next eight months, I'm going to call them miracles, did 12 miracles. And in another time, if you're interested one-on-one, I could share them with you. Providing $1,400 here and four or 500 here and a check in the mail for 500. How did this happen? And, and just one thing after another, 12 times in eight months, God did this. And I'm going to tell you this. It wasn't beca- because Mike Curtis is some awesome guy, because I know that I am not. I know that I am weak. I know that I am helpless, but I know whom I serve. And I serve the most amazing God who loves when we are weak, to flex his muscles and demonstrate to us just how strong he is. We notice here in the text, he confesses his powerlessness. He says, because we are powerless, we rely on you. That Hebrew word for rely on is generally translated lean on. As you lean on a staff, And the idea behind this is whatever you're leaning on, if it breaks, you fall to the ground. Some of you right now, you are weak, you you, you are so weak, you are having to lean on that staff, on God himself. I just want you to know 
that your God, he is strong enough, and he will not break. Your God is strong enough so that when you are weak, he will show just how powerfully he is and how faithful to his promises to you he is. You are fully able to lean on him. Yeah, I've heard accusations from skeptics, atheists, Mike, you know what? The reason, you know, Christianity is just a crutch for you guys to lean on. And I have to say, well, you know what? It's not Christianity that's my crutch. It's Jesus. Because I, I know just how weak I am. And I need someone to lean on. But you're right. My Jesus is my crutch. But in my weakness, that's when he is so, made so strong in my life. So we lean on him. We rely on him. And he, he goes on, we rely on you in your name. Now that simply means in the Old Testament, it just simply means as your representative. That's why he says, I mean, God, are you going to let man prevail against you? I'm just your representative. I'm going to let the go-between here. Now I don't know if Asa had a spiritual battle in mind, but that's really what was going on here. There's a spiritual battle. It is not just flesh and blood on the field here. This is a spiritual battle. God, I'm sorry, but who's going to win here? Are you going to let man defeat you? I'm just your representative. You know, as we move into the New Testament, I'm going to confess we are God's representative. We are. We're his ambassadors. You remember that passage in 2 Corinthians chapter, chapter 5? We're his ambassadors. Well, it, it's more than that. You see, we're his ambassadors in this way. We go in his name, the powerful name of Jesus Christ, at which every knee will confess, every, excuse me, every tongue will confess, every knee will bow before this name. Maybe some tongues bend, I don't know. But the truth is God is going to receive all the praise and the glory, and in his name, as his not just his representative, but his Holy Spirit is in me. And this is what he said to, the, to his disciples as they went out. In, in Luke chapter 10, they came back after this amazing short-term missions trip. And in chapter 10, let me read it to you. Chapter 10, verse 17, the 72, not just the 12, the 72, returned with joy and said, oh, God, Jesus, listen to this. It's amazing. Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. What? Wow. I mean, they cast demons out. They anointed people with oil, and people were healed right before their eyes. Jesus, I mean, we saw you do this, but now we're, we're doing it ourselves. This is so cool. And here's Jesus' response to it. Just a little bit of a chuckle, like, well, yeah. But he says this. He says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions. In the very next chapter, right after, right after he gives a teaching on the Lord's Prayer, he, he uses scorpions and snakes, both of these images, as representatives of that which is evil. That's what you're going to trample on, guys. You're going to trample on all that is evil. All that is evil. And to overcome all the power of the enemy. Well, so of course, guys, 
But you know what? You did it, just as you said, in your name, Jesus. Because as representatives, I'm going to use the term power of attorney, which is really what we have been given. We are in his name, representing him, speaking his words, doing his actions. Why? Because we are completely reliant upon him. Who else will come and rescue us? Who else will save the day? Who else will heal the sick? Who else will proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ? That's the power of God unto salvation. No one, church, but you, but us. And we go out in the full power over uh, full authority over all the power of the enemy. I'm, I'm not dreaming here. I'm not just trying to speak, you know, lofty words. This is a truth. So when you're on your face, you just need to know this. You're right. You're powerless. Just confess it. God, I'm powerless. I can't do this. I'm so weak. But hang on. When you rely on him, when you lean on him, when you go out representing him, speaking and doing what he has told you, you do so with all authority. Jesus has received all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. I know for me, since I was a, a young, I had 14 years of age is when I gave my heart to Christ. He filled me with his spirit at age 16. He began planting in me a desire to evangelize, to sh just share anything that walked on two feet with, to, to be able to share Jesus with them. Three times a day, I, God gave me opportunities in 11th and 12th grade to, to, to witness and share the gospel. And... God had just placed this burden on my heart for the lost. And I can remember so many times, some of these people I'd grown up with for 12 years. And I would weep in my closet, my, my bedroom. And I would just say, God, can you not rescue them? And, and I, I can't, I'm, I'm not a skilled speaker. Actually, I was a horrible speaker. And I said, God, I can't win them. And I'm just going to take every opportunity I've got, and I'm going to talk about you. And I came up with, honestly, church, some silly ways to evangelize. And I would go into a, 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 my cafeteria, and I had these little tracks, and one of them, you, you, you know this, one of them was a picture in the very front of this guy with a big hole in his stomach. He's lifting up his shirt, rather immodest, honestly, but there's a fly flying through him, and it says above there, what fills the gap? That's, that's, <laughs> I'm surprised people didn't look at me and said, really, this is so silly. But as they began to go through it, they realized that drugs didn't fill it, and sex didn't fill it, and money, and and some of them, maybe they didn't realize that. And 10 years later, maybe then they would reflect back and say, wow. That little tract that, uh, what, what's his name, gave me. So probably forget me. That's so true. And I remember after I was done and I read that Jesus is the only answer. And maybe it took 10 years maybe 40, and then finally the truth settled in their hearts and they found themselves at this place of complete brokenness because their marriage has fallen apart. 
family gone, alone. Is there a God? Is there something that can fill this ache in my soul? I remember. I remember hearing about Jesus. And that's my prayer. Honestly, that's what I've been praying this past week. God, I can remember so many times, and there was so little fruit. Then, would you bring a harvest now? Just, just have them, I don't care, they don't need to remember my name. But could they remember the truth that they received that day? The send pulled together, I heard about 60,000 people from Metro Orlando and beyond. They gave a challenge for 40 days, starting March 1st, of fasting and praying. Some of you were there, a number of you were. They did some things that you thought were a little weird, hokey. Yeah, maybe. But to my knowledge, that none of, none of what they asked you to do or, or said broke a biblical principle. May I remind you, though, that Ezekiel was told to lay on his side, what was it, 240 days, and on his other side for 40. And, and this was supposed to, he actually made models of Jerusalem. And he did some really weird stuff, church. People laughed at him, mocked him. Okay. But he stood and he said, repent and turn back to God. And that's what they heard. So the send, regardless of what you may have seen, I believe they truly represent the heart of God in seeing global revival. Next week, we're going to begin a series. Um, I believe God wants us to me to touch on Hebrews 12. That'll work in there somewhere. Maybe not next week. But I believe God wants us to go through what does the Bible have to say about this? Global revival. Is that just kind of like pie in the sky Christianity? Is that like what we're hoping for? Does the Bible actually teach this? Because most people have this idea, well, you know, in the end times, everyone's going to fall away. It's going to get really bad. I mean, hey, we'll do the best we can, I guess, to evangelize. But can I just kind of pop that bubble? Because that is not what the Bible tells me. That is one understanding of the book of Revelation. And God has something. If there, there is going to be a falling away, but before that, there's going to be a global revival. I want us to look at this. And how does it, in the first great awakening, though um, some of them, Jonathan Edwards had a slightly different millennial view than I do. He truly believed in what I believe. And what I see in scripture is a global revival. It's coming. I'm not saying that everyone in the world is going to get saved. Of course not. There's always the weeds in the weeds. But God is going to do something marvelous before Christ comes. My prayer is, God, would you do that in my generation? And so this is what we're praying for. You know, if there's one thing that I'm going to, well, there's many things. If there's one thing that I'm taking away in my many years in ministry is this. I can't. With man, I'm not a good enough strategist. There are many pastors out there. They're incredible strategists. I don't do that. I'm not real good. There are many of them, they, you just sit there and you are mesmerized for 30 minutes. You're like focused on every word. Oh my goodness, this is the word of God. I'm, I just say before I, I preach, I just say, okay, God, I believe this is what you've given me. You got to do the rest. I can't. I mean, we realize in this day that, that we're broken people. Luke 11, excuse me, Luke 4, Jesus quoted from Isaiah 61 and him being the anointed one that he came to heal the broken 
and crushed ones. And I mentioned to you some months ago, that word means broken beyond repair. Good luck, all the psychiatrists and psychologists today. You, you're having your day. People are turning to you. But you know what? You're ministering to people that you cannot fix. They are broken beyond your ability to repair because only Jesus can do that. They, all of these, all of us are the broken, crushed ones. And so what I'm saying is simply this. We're entering into a 40-day fast, however God so leads you. Um, that's going to look like just water or juice for some days, uh, maybe for the whole 40 days, um, fasting soda or fasting uh, dessert or you know, eating just vegetables or however God leads you. But we are fasting. And that is all that is, is it is saying, God, I am really taking this seriously because I am so stinking hungry right now, man. But God, I'm taking this seriously and I'm going to pray. And I, you know, if my people who are called by my name and God, I, I'm asking that you bring about revival in this land. I cannot affect that. Only you can. And so we find ourselves walking in this at a place of weakness. And church, if this is going to happen, the only way it will is because God shows up. That's the only way. And that's what prayer is going to do. It's going to ask him, God, show up. Do not let man triumph over you in this generation. 